0: In just a moment, I want us to hear the Word of God in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. It will be a couple of minutes, but you can be opening to Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and find verse 13. The book of Ecclesiastes may be considered, especially when you first read it, as troublesome or difficult. I hear that a lot from people who undertake their first reading of Ecclesiastes. And what I always recommend when people talk to me about some Bible book or passage they consider difficult, just keep reading. Keep reading the Bible as a whole and keep reading the troublesome passage or the book where you have discovered some difficulty. And very often when you just keep reading and operate on some patience with yourself, the difficulty begins to disappear. And that's just from investing more time in reading the Bible and reading the passage or book you're having trouble with. I would say that about Ecclesiastes. If it seems difficult, keep reading it over and over And do all of your other reading through the Bible. And in this process of patient reading, difficulties may slowly disappear. And good teaching at the same time will emerge to apply in your life. The daily Bible reading that we recommend has us reading Ecclesiastes over the next few days. And this sermon is a part of my continuing Effort to encourage or re-encourage daily Bible reading by preaching from where we are in that reading about once a month on a Sunday evening. Now, let's talk about Ecclesiastes in general before we get to this text. It may help in your reading this week. People often say about the book that it takes a very cynical view of life. That when you first read it may become a turnoff, and that bothers people. Reading through the book, people may pick up a dark and depressing view of life on earth. There's a reason for that. There's a reason why readers get that darker impression as they read Ecclesiastes. And the reason is. Solomon is telling the truth. And the truth is, life on earth without God is dark and depressing. Solomon tried it in his adventure of sin. Solomon witnessed it. And then perhaps later in his life, he saw it very clearly and God used him to write about life under the sun, here in Ecclesiastes. Life under the sun, life on earth without God is dark and depressing. It is vanity of vanities. And that in my judgment is the theme of this book. Here's what I see, and you may remember me saying this a few months ago when we studied from Ecclesiastes in our Bible classes. Solomon Tells us the bad news about life on earth without God, and he calls that vanity of vanities and a chasing after the wind. He tells us this so that he can tell us the good news at the end of the book. And the good news is you can live on earth with God in your life if you fear God and keep His commandments. That's wise living. That's the superior way to live your life and navigate with divine light through a world that is otherwise limited to the earth, a very dark place. Okay, once we get that about the theme of Ecclesiastes, we can get busy with some passages that can really teach us well and help us fear God and keep His commandments like this one, that is observational and instructive. We're at our place now. This passage is observational and instructive. Ecclesiastes 9:13 to 18. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king... Came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. I want to begin with something that is not my main point tonight, but I can't let this go without mention. I'm going to call this, A passage that is observational and instructive. And it leads me to this. We need to open our eyes and look around and learn by observation, but interpret what we observe around us with God's Word. Let me say that again. We need to open our eyes and learn from observation, but interpret what we observe on earth with God's Word. Things are happening all around us within our circles of experience, workplaces, homes, churches, neighborhoods. Through televised news and internet, we're able to see things happening all around the world. It will be good for us to open our eyes and learn by observation and pay attention, but use God's Word to interpret what we observe. Solomon made some serious mistakes in his life But this passage confirms he was a curious observer of the times. And he learned things by watching. He said, I also have seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. He made observations. Then, of course, God inspired him to write those observations with divine truth attached for our benefit. The standard by which we measure everything we see ought to be God's Word. But there is value in seeing and knowing what's happening around us, so long as we take the Word with us. Now, I'm going to get there. I'm almost to my main point. I believe this passage answers a question that comes up As you navigate life under the sun. And the question can be stated this way What is the deciding factor? In the struggles and conflicts that take place under the sun, that in some cases we participate in, what is the deciding factor? In the tensions that may come up in our minds, what is the deciding factor? In choices that people make about religion and morality, what is the deciding factor? Let's consider these observations from the text in Ecclesiastes 9 13 through 18. The deciding factor is its size. We live in a time when there is an abiding interest in size. The motto of our time seems to be, bigger is better. And this may begin very early in life. Have you ever heard little children engaged in competitive conversations? My daddy is bigger than your daddy. My kids heard that a lot. Our house is is bigger than your house. My bike is bigger. My toys are bigger. Our car, our family car is bigger. You would hear that among children. When I was a teenager, I'd go fishing with a bunch of guys and we would have a contest. The guy who caught the biggest fish won, not measured in number or pounds, but big. And the guy who caught the smallest or didn't catch any would be designated to clean and cook everything. Well, we may be very forgiving of this regarding little children or even teenage boys. But I'm telling you, some people never gain a wiser view of things. They take it with them all their life that bigger is always better. There are adults, sometimes senior citizens who call me or send an email inquiring about Laurel Heights... Folks who are not here, and they want to know number one, what's the first thing they want to know? How big is the church? I mean, before they ask about the authority for what we do and the content of what we do, before they want to know much else, the first question often is how big is the church? there is this view that bigger has to be better. When in fact, every serious Bible student must admit the New Testament says nothing that would equate size with spiritual benefit. The Bible doesn't tell us that size is the deciding factor. In fact, it wasn't the deciding factor in the case of David and Goliath, was it? It wasn't the deciding factor in the case of Gideon and his army. And now there is this teaching here we're looking at from Solomon. Listen again, there was a little city with few men in it and a great king who came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. Now, you pick up something immediately when you read that. The city was little. The men were few. (coughs) The king was great and had an army big enough to build siege works. But in this little city, there was found a poor, wise man. And by his wisdom, the city was delivered. The deciding factor was not size. Wisdom comes to Solomon as he makes observations and he factors into those observations God's will that God gave him. Many people in our world operate on the assumption that money is the deciding factor. The common thinking is the rich always have the advantage. In fact, the poorer people are actually called, in our vernacular, the disadvantaged. It is believed that rich nations have the advantage, and rich companies with abundant profits have the advantage, and rich school districts have the advantage. I don't think I need to prove to you that that's common thinking, that wealth is attached to greatness and becomes the deciding factor. But when you begin to think more clearly, this is the way it is. You are startled sometimes by things that upset that assumption. And Solomon saw, as he made observations with God's will, the exception to what many people believe would be the rule. I've known some very wise people in my life. Some were very rich. Some we're very poor. Now listen carefully. I suppose I could say this is what I've learned by observation, using God's word to interpret what I saw. The wise people I've known were not wise because of their wealth. The poor people I've known were not wise because of their poverty. I know a few millionaires who are Christians, faithful Christians, who are wise. I think I know some people at the other end of the economic scale who are just as wise. And of course, for most of us, most of the people we know are somewhere between those extremes. When it comes to character and moral leadership and good discipleship, it's not about what you have in the bank. It's about what you have in your heart. Your influence is not in proportion to your financial holdings. Your capacity to lead well isn't about the money that you have, it is about what you have let Christ make of you. It is about what you have let Christ make of you. So Solomon is looking and watching around, and he's using God's Word to interpret what he sees. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with a few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city, yet no one remembered that poor Man, The deciding factor is not size. The deciding factor is not money. And the deciding factor is not volume. I'm going to use the word volume in an accommodative general sense, and I'm going to compare noise with silence. And I want to use an illustration. And in that illustration, there will be my opinion, but the illustration illustrates. The quality of music is not to be judged by the volume. Has this ever happened to you? I can pull up to an intersection and either have no audio on in my car or maybe have my favorite recorded hymns or classical music I'm playing the music in my car just for me. It suits my taste and mood. Everything is fine, and it's confined to my car. Then gradually, my internal organs begin to thump with a certain rhythm that increases. That's not coming from my audio. And I look over in the lane next to me, and here's this guy with rap music pumped into all of Hidalgo County. And all you hear is the bass line and the percussion. I tell you, music is not just about volume. There is this mentality that is older than Solomon that real living on earth is about size and money and volume. Listen to verses 16 and 17. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. I want to say that some of the best things that happen have no volume. Some of the best things that happen among men have no volume at all. You never hear it. You never know about it. Because people who are wise with humility go about their work seeking no stage, no publicity. They are quiet. You talk about cynical and negative. Have you ever heard anything like this from someone? Nobody ever does anything. Christians don't do anything. The members of the church never help anyone. And my response to that kind of negative grumbling is often, how do you know? How do you know? As a preacher for over 48 years, I know very well that most of the good things that happen in local churches, most of the members don't know about. People helping people. Encouragement given. All the prayers that are prayed that we never hear. Bible studies that are conducted in small groups are one-on-one counseling spiritually from one member to another, admonitions that need to be given to those guilty of sin, or financial help or spiritual help. Most of that takes place quietly and privately. I'll tell you that right now in this church, I know of several good things happening where people are serving in various ways, not public, not on a stage, but of great value. And they would not want me to stand up here and list all of their works and accomplishments. And so will you look now at verse 17 again. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of rulers among fools. Wisdom is generally not found in the boisterous blabbing and loud shouting of men. There is great power and value in the quiet, humble service of good people doing what they're able to do according to what God has said. Such works may not be heard, may not be seen, may not be known or remembered among men. Solomon said about the poor wise man, no one remembered. God knows. God knew. You see, the deciding factor is not volume. So where does Solomon take all of this? Well, you already know. The deciding factor is wisdom. And Solomon uses in this passage (coughs) what is sometimes called a figure of comparison. A figure of comparison. I'm talking about where he says, Wisdom is better than weapons of war. I don't care what your political posture is, who your candidate is, or what your position is about war. All right-thinking people understand that wisdom is to be preferred over gunfire, over weapons of war. Now, it can be argued that if you have to have weapons, you might have to have them in case wisdom doesn't work when talks break down or negotiation stops, and you have to defend and protect people. I'll tell you, I get that. But I hope we never get to a place where we just start with pulling triggers and dropping bombs, ignoring what the Bible says here wisdom is better than weapons. Of war. Now, underlying that, what is there? All through Ecclesiastes that you're going to be reading, particularly at the end of the book, what is underlying this assertion that wisdom is the way to live? That wisdom is attainable. Fear God and keep His commandments. Now, if you read that, fear God and keep His commandments, and you say, wait a minute, I haven't kept His commandments. I've made mistakes, maybe not of the magnitude of David and Solomon as documented in the Old Testament, but I've certainly sinned. What do I do now? Jesus Christ died to forgive you of your sin. So that goes back to just keep reading. Ecclesiastes, just keep reading and you'll find redemption. Come to Him in trust and express that trust in obedience that begins in baptism and continues to be forgiven, and to have the power and motive to live wisely, fearing God and keeping His commandments. All right. Turn to chapter 12 and look at 13 and 14. This is where it is all headed in Ecclesiastes. Solomon gives us the bad news that life on earth under the sun... Without God is dark and depressing. Vanity of vanities. But here's the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment. With every secret thing whether good or evil. Fear God and keep His commandments. Remember that as you begin reading in Ecclesiastes and remember it in your life this week and until you die. Let's be standing as we sing.